And this is so different from Richard Nixon trying to say that he's uh, trying to bring about peace when actually he was expanding the war. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Well, hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. We've been talking about lies. I put it out that this is my front runner for word of the year. I'm calling the race early on. Can I go to Vegas and bet on this? I don't know. <laughs> if I do, it'll be the first thing I ever go to Vegas and bet on. But um, anyway, I thought this was an interesting topic, and it turns out it is interesting. We were talking about some of the history of presidential lies last time. We talked about Machiavelli, and we talked about propaganda. We started talking about propaganda in relation to the uh, Nazi regime, of course, in Nazi Germany. And we left on a quote. It was a quote from a psychological profile or a description of a psychological profile that the U.S. did on Hitler's Germany. Yeah, it was called the Nizkor Project. Yeah, the NISCOR project is a Holocaust remembrance project. Um, this was their characterization of the U.S. psychological profile of Hitler. And you read it last time, but I want to start with that. So maybe we should read it again to just refresh our memory. You want to take a turn? Sure, I'll take a turn this time. <laughs> this is kind of a summary of the report, or one aspect of the report. His primary rules were... Never allow the public to cool off. Never admit a fault or wrong. Never concede that there may be some good in your enemy. Never leave room for alternatives. Never accept blame. Concentrate on one enemy at a time and blame him for everything that goes wrong. People will believe a big lie sooner than a little one. And if you repeat it frequently enough, people will sooner or later believe it. Boy, does that sound contemporary. Uh, boy, it's a little scary. Um, but, uh, you know, that last point, if you repeat it frequently enough, people will sooner or later believe it. That does comport with some psychological studies that seem to show that same thing, that people can be persuaded by lies. A couple of examples that I've thought of recently that I actually had to deal with. Somebody was talking on Facebook about, you know, not spitting on soldiers for their service and so on. And I referred him to an article about the book that studied the whole legend that war protesters spit on soldiers when they came back, which is an urban legend that just has had tremendous power and just used over and over again. Just to wind it back just a second, the idea is that the soldiers would be literally coming off the airplane or something like that in an airport. From Vietnam. From Vietnam. And some hippie would approach them, some hippie protester, war protester would spit in their face, right? Right. And there is just no instance of that. Not only that, but there was a lot of collaboration between um, 
the anti-war movement and ex-soldiers, many of whom had turned against the war. Um, the local chapter of SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, that I belonged to at that time, actually had as its president uh, a Marine veteran. And that was just so far from what was going on. The other one, of course, that's even more famous is bra burning. Mm. There were never any feminists that burned their bras in protest. There was one group which threw some various things that they thought were confining women to certain roles into a garbage can at a protest of Miss America. And that included stenographic notepads, among other things. And yes, a bra, but it was not burned. And it was not saying everybody should go braless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It was just saying, you've got one stereotyped idea of what women must be. But the image of women burning their bras is so powerful that to this day, vast majority still believe that it happened. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's an instance of propaganda, isn't it? I mean, it does cross over into propaganda when urban legends like that or stories like that just become so subsumed that people just casually believe them to be true. Yeah, it's a little different from propaganda, and I don't think either of those was really plotted out as a lie. They're just stories that circulated that were seized on and were just too good not to be true from the point of view of people using it. But they both show how if you have certain attitudes, you're going to believe it. But what was heartening to me is when I posted on Facebook uh, this link to actually the Wikipedia article review about this whole tradition, uh, the guy said, well, I stand corrected and thank you for that. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, sometimes you can uncover it. But there are just certain things that people believe that are almost unshakable. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about propaganda last time. And you were pointing out that um, it wasn't necessarily that propaganda has always been considered to have those negative connotations. The word propagate is from the same root used in gardening a great deal sure you want to propagate the species if you want to go that direction um it doesn't necessarily have a negative connotation to it until sometime we think maybe late 19th early 20th century maybe really the 20th century is where it really kicks in around the time of world war one where we start thinking of political propaganda being something that's really negative yeah so the term first was derived from uh a body created by the Catholic Church in 1622 called the Congregatio de Propaganda Fide, mm. Congregation for Propagating the Faith. And it was referred to for short just as propaganda. And the idea was to spread the Catholic faith in non-Catholic countries. So propagating in the agricultural sense and in the religious sense are pretty close to each other. So it didn't originally say that it's lying, it's preaching, it's it's uh, missionarying, it's mm-hmm. trying to get things out. So in the mid-19th century, it gets applied to the political sphere, but it still remained fairly neutral. I mean, there were people who criticized bad propaganda, but uh, the Germans were quite open about creating a, something called the Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda, clearly not thinking that propaganda was synonymous with lies, even though under Joseph Goebbels it pretty much was. 
And it's not until the 20s, really, that it begins to get this very uniformly bad reputation so that nobody speaks of propaganda as a good thing now. Yeah, right. Can we circle back a little bit and talk about something we did a little bit of last time uh, and just talk about some of the history of lies in our own country? We'll get off of Nazi Germany for a while um, and talk about some of the other um, presidential untruths, uh, notorious ones over the years. And then I want to get around eventually to talking about more contemporary issues around Donald Trump, our current president. All right. Very often, uh, presidential administrations cover up things, essentially lying about what's going on, sometimes by omission, for what they consider the public's own good, but which may be serving their own interests more. And that's notable when a president gets severely ill and doesn't want to admit to the public. Churchill famously tried to conceal how sick he was at a period when he wanted to hang on to the prime ministership and successfully bullied the queen into keeping him on when he was really quite unfit to do anything. This also happened during Wilson's period when he got quite sick and his wife was essentially taking over the running of the government and not really being honest with the public about how ill he was. Took a while for Eisenhower's first heart attack to be revealed. And, of course, John Kennedy's illnesses were concealed uh, along with all of his womanizing, which is more interesting to a lot of the public. But he also was unfit in some ways, in, in pain a great deal of the time. And um, people would have been much more suspicious of him. He had this image that he promoted of a healthy football playing, you know, lively young guy. Uh, when his famous rocking chair was something that he really needed to reveal the pain in his back. Reminds me of that old popular song, Old Rocking Chairs Got Me. Mm-hmm. And uh, the most famous, of course, was uh, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who became paralyzed and had to be held up, propped up when he moved around. And then... Uh, would hang on to a lectern when he was speaking sometimes. And the press collaborated. They all knew very clearly that the president had lost the use of his legs, um, but it was considered unfit to say anything about it. But a more relevant kind of deception of FDR is in his maneuvering uh, up to World War II. The American popular opinion was very hesitant, to say the least, about getting involved in another American war. They'd felt pretty much snookered by their involvement in World War One, which had been probably a pretty unnecessary war and certainly a very stupidly conducted one. It turned out to be catastrophic, but worse was the aftermath in which Germany and Britain uh, treated Germany in a way that set them up for another war and for the success of Hitler and so on. FDR um, had to deal with a public which was getting excited about being isolationist and where the slogan America first was very widespread. And yet he felt that something had to be done to help the British in particular. And so he did all kinds of maneuvering to say that he was not going to send soldiers when almost certainly he knew that eventually he was going to have to. The Lend-Lease program, which was a military aid to Britain, was put forward as a way of keeping Americans out of the war. It actually helped to move them toward acceptance of it. Um, 
this has led to some suspicions on the part of some extreme anti-Roosevelt people to say that he knew in advance about the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and concealed it and allowed it to go forward and happen so he could trick the American people into getting into the war. That has been thoroughly rejected by respectable historians. Um, but you'll still hear that bouncing around in extreme right-wing circles at times. But on the other hand, Lyndon Johnson definitely did lie to get America into the Vietnam War. Um, well, we should say more deeply involved in the Vietnam War because Kennedy, of course, started sending troops over there. Right, right. So he um, drew on... Uh, there was a radar report that a couple of American warships had been attacked in the Gulf of Tonkin. It turned out to be a, a radar ghost. It was, there was no such attack. Um, but he not only reported to this public as an act of war, but uh, doubled down on it and insisted on it forever after, even after he knew that it was absolutely not the case. And so I think he really had Pearl Harbor in mind when he was doing that. Mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan, often untruths, um, but like Trump, he seems often to have believed his own misstatements. Um, and he would pick things up from disreputable sources, the, the famous welfare queen story that justified his anti-welfare things, which, um, you know, there was such a person, but she was not as he represented her at all. Uh, but rather than go into that, the one that interests me, really, is that he told Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir that he and his film crew had personally shot footage of the liberation of Nazi concentration camps. So he was you know, trying to show that he had done his part in World War II and he understood what the Jews went through, etc. In fact, he had merely processed footage that was taken by others when he was working at a studio in Culver City, California, where is where he spent the war. There are some people who think that his whole anti-ballistic missile program, the idea that you could shoot down incoming missiles, was based on a movie that he had been in, and he was remembering it as if it were scientific fact. So there was often a lot of uh, mixture of facts and fiction in his mind, but his most famous lies that were really lies was the cover-up of the Iran-Contra affair, which was very complicated. I think most people still don't understand what it was about. What essentially happened, um, just to give the brief gloss, is that Iran was under sanctions because of the hostage holding and so on. And so they wanted to supply arms to Nicaraguan rebels, but they couldn't sell arms to Nicaraguan rebels either. So they somehow brokered a deal to ship arms through Iran and over to the Contra forces in Nicaragua to help them in their uh, uprising against the president at the time, Daniel Ortega. Now, this was all conducted in the Reagan administration, and his underlings, Oliver North and others, were prosecuted, but he himself escaped prosecution, just claiming he just didn't know. These were just rogue operators in his administration. Right, right. And George H.W. Bush got away with it, too. The business of just being carried away by your own story, which I think Reagan often did, um, is something that's turned up in quite a few people's cases. And Hillary Clinton was not exempt from this. Uh, a lot of people like to remember her story of being under fire in Bosnia. She got off the plane and people were shooting and so on. It turned out that wasn't true. Yeah. 
And just to go back to Reagan real briefly, we know he suffered from senility, and we don't know how far back he was beginning to lose his mind. Right. And it's entirely possible that he truly did believe some of these things had happened to him, which actually happened in movies he had filmed. Now, of course, the deceptive practices of the George W. Bush administration are extremely well known and, and talked to death. And, you know, we were tricked into believing that Iraq had these nuclear weapons building program when they didn't. And there's complexities about when he knew it. And the main thing is that in a lot of these cases, they'll never go back and admit that they were mistaken. Um, but there were a plethora of lies involved in that administration. But a lot of uh, the discussion now about whether to call Trump's misstatements lies um, is a debate over whether the intent to deceive is a necessary element in a lie. And the first definition in the Oxford English Dictionary is an act or instance of lying, a false statement made with intent to deceive a criminal falsehood. So the intent to deceive is buried in there. And I think that's what is giving a lot of journalists agonies. How much is Trump intending to deceive people? How much has he deceived himself? How much is he just confused? How much does he just not care and things just come out of his mouth at random? Can you call them all lies? But the second definition the dictionary gives, which is, I think, a pretty common one, is something grossly deceptive, an imposture. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's it's a word that is used from the outside. You don't often hear people saying, okay, I will now tell you a lie. Although there are, you know, cowboy lying contests and things like that. Okay. People amuse themselves by making up far-fetched stories. But otherwise, when we're using the term seriously, it's something you say about somebody else. And you can't know. Really, at the moment the person is speaking, most of the time, you can't know whether they're lying or not. Uh, it's been pointed out, for instance, that Trump will often contradict himself in a single sentence, where recently at a news conference, he said that he doesn't watch CNN anymore, and then complained about one of CNN's commentators that he had just watched that previous morning. And he doesn't seem to care. And this was only a few minutes apart. Right. Almost immediately on top of each other, sometimes in the same sentence, <laughs> they'll go 180 degrees. Uh, th this is so different from Richard Nixon trying to say that he's, uh, you know, trying to bring about peace when actually he was expanding the war. Where mm -hmm. he would gather with his minions and they would plot all the ins and outs of how can we deceive the public in the most effective ways? What are the possible downfalls? What traps can we avoid? What kind of exact wording should we use? Um, of course, much of that documented on tape in Nixon's administration. Or as Trump just blurts things out that are patently false with seemingly no thought given whatsoever to what's effective, what makes any kind of sense, and you know what follows a, a pattern that we've laid down, a program that we've got here. There are certain things he says over and over very effectively, like the press is a bunch of liars. It's the lying press, the lying press, the lying press. And then he'll turn around in the same context and say, well, I'm very honored to have this conversation with you. Uh, 
recently, the striking example, was that he was uh, really upset about the news that some of the people that he planned to have in his cabinet had been in touch with Russia and with not only that, with security agents in Russia. And he didn't seem to be as upset by the fact that they had been in touch in such a way uh, as that the word had leaked out. But his way of reacting to this was to say, this is just a story made up by the lying media. And the terrible thing about this is that it's leaked out. Now, there's one of two things going on there. Either it's true and it leaked and that's too bad for him or it's not true and the press made it up. And that's too bad for him. I mean, you can complain about one or the other of those, but you can't complain about both of them simultaneously. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And he followed that up with one of his classic, I think a classic statement. He said, uh, the leaks are real, but the news is fake. So the leaks are real, but the news is fake because so much of the news is fake. Right. As if that explains the phenomenon of fake news. And of course, his conception of what fake news is, is not the commonly held definition of fake news. He thinks uh, mainstream media news, as reported by CNN or New York Times or other major media outlets, uh, they're prone to publishing fake news. Whereas the origin of the expression fake news is something much more uh, rogue it's just people finding a photograph online or finding a photograph somewhere of something and then slapping a headline on it that purports to explain what the photo is. This is one typical kind of use of it uh, in order to get clicks onto their website. Yeah, some of it was purely commercial, wanting to make money, and some of it was to try to stir up animosity toward your opponent's ideas. Some of them are ideologically motivated, some not. One of the biggest generators of fake news was a guy who actually was happy to do them in both directions and do things that were fake news about liberals and fake news about conservatives. They all made money for him. Right. The point is, it's not uh, based on any sources or any journalism or anything like that, any reporting. It's just strictly manufactured stories. Whereas Trump's uh, attitude seems to be, I read this someplace or I heard this someplace and, and that's enough for me. A lot of people believe it. I believe it. And when Sean Spicer is asked at a press conference, uh, where's the president's evidence? He says, well, the president has believed this for a long time. Yes. <laughs> and that's. It's the president's belief. There is no evidence. Yeah. Well, can I talk a little bit about truthiness? Sure. And the expression post-truth politics, because I think we need to get there in talking about Trump also. Um, we all know the word truthiness. It was famously, it's attributed to Stephen Colbert, who uh, used it to define uh, facts that one wishes to be true and prefers facts that one wishes to be true over facts that are known to be true. This is truth that comes from the gut. It's truth that feels right. And uh, more than 10 years ago, it was 2005, it itself was selected as word of the year. This was in the Colbert Report in the days when he was pretending to be this right-wing bloviator. Exactly, yeah. And uh, the American Dialect Society, Merriam-Webster, picked it as word of the year. So it really did blow up as a phenomenon, this concept of truthiness. 
It turns out that the word truthiness actually does go back in usage quite a ways. Um, the OED says it was 1824, but uh, there was some other research that was done by Ben Zimmer. He thinks it's more likely to be 1837. It doesn't really matter to me one way or the other, those 13 years. But um, the word truthiness did actually have a meaning originally back then that meant what you might think truthiness to be, meaning the quality of, you might describe somebody as having truthiness if they were prone to be a very honest person. Uh, but uh, when somebody pointed that out to Colbert, of course, uh, his response was, you don't look it up in a book, you look it up in your gut. That expression right there, I think, is what you're getting at about Trump. You don't look it up in a book, you look it up in your gut. It's what you feel to be true. It's what you believe to be true. And this is not really, um, we talked about Johnson's Gulf of Tonkin proclamations and so on as vile as those things are and uh, lying about uh, weapons of mass destruction held by Saddam Hussein, this quality of Trump lies, I perceive it as being something really, really off the trail. Am I off base here? No, everybody's talking about that. And, and journalists are finding a hard time dealing with it. They're reluctant to call his lies liars or to call him a liar. Most of them, uh, NPR was criticized a lot for refusing to just refer to his misstatements as lies, although they've done a better job than anybody <laughs> about fact checking him, mm. uh, especially on the media. One of my favorite podcasts. Listen to it. <laughs> okay. And it's not just a crusade against Trump. It can be very self-critical at times. But um, what they're saying is there's a certain satisfaction in calling somebody a liar. It feels good. You know, you've really said it. You've made it explicit. You've laid it out there. It's uncompromising. He's a liar. But if you have this definition that says that you need to know that the person is being deceptive deliberately, he knows the truth, but he's saying a falsehood in order to be called a liar, then that really is a journalistic problem. So one way the New York Times has gotten around it is that they don't always attribute the lies to the president. They'll say that Trump believes or repeats the lies that have been told. And they've even put that in headlines. So that's one way to deal with it. Uh, others prefer to use falsehoods. Um, you know, a falsehood could be false without being an intentional lie, I guess, in some people's minds. There's various ways of dealing with it. Um, uh, those who are really opposed to Trump very firmly will sometimes accuse the press, particularly NPR, of pussyfooting when they don't just come out and call him a liar. Although I think they have a very good rationale for not doing so. It's sort of the same trap that the conservatives tried to put the liberals into by saying, why don't you call it Islamic terrorism? And they acted as if this was somehow a brave, much more accurate, less cowardly version of it. When in fact, uh, you can make a good case that ISIS is really totally unrepresentative of Islam, uh, that the main victims of their terrorism are other Muslims. There's all kinds of good reasons not to use it. And the pragmatic one, which the Obama administration put forward very clearly, was our main allies in the fight against terrorists like ISIS and Al-Qaeda are other Muslims. And just by labeling it as characteristically Islamic, you're alienating the very people that you need most to be on your side. And uh, that's just politically stupid. 
but it was made a a test case. If you're really a true American, you're going to call it Islamic terrorism. Similarly, now some liberals are saying if you're really against Trump, you've got to call him a liar. And I think they're both mistaken. Well, I think we need to throw in an exception to the intent clause of calling a lie a lie because there is an instance. I mean, this is what happened in the case of Michael Flynn, Mm -hmm. who was forced to resign after lying about the nature of his conversation with the Russians intelligence. Right. And in that case, he really did lie. Yes. We know that because his phone call was tapped and it was recorded. And leaked. And then leaked. (laughs) So uh, we can determine from the outside that there was intent. And it isn't always necessarily that uh, the person confesses at some point, well, okay, I did intend to do that. So you can't call it a lie. We can call a lie a lie in those cases. Right. But interestingly, Trump fired him for lying. Yes, that's fascinating to me. But we talk about the casual sort of lies that Trump tells. Uh, Did you know in his autobiography, he referred to truthful hyperbole? Yes. In fact, I heard quite a lengthy interview. I think it was on the media with the uh, author of that book. Uh, The big lie of that was Trump never wrote that book. (laughs) He may not have read it. Yes, right. (laughs) Ghostwritten. Yes, of course. The Art of the Deal was his famous book. Yeah, right. And he refers to um, truthful hyperbole, which sounds an awful lot like truthiness to me. Yes. Yeah. And um, that idea that uh, we're just kind of stretching the truth. Yes, not so much that he doesn't believe he's lying. He just doesn't feel guilty about it. Yeah. He feels like what he's doing is okay. It's just part of negotiations, so the way you make your way through the world. Right. And we have referenced a few studies, a few psychological studies along the way here. Let's just throw in another one that shows that the more you lie, the easier it is to lie. So the advice here is to keep your lies down to a minimum, (laughs) a very, very low minimum. Of course, everybody lies at some point or other. Well, you had some statistics on that. Well, I have statistics on Trump, yeah. Uh, This is from PolitiFact. Uh, They point out that of his statements that they're tracking, at the time we're having this conversation, they put out that 69% of what he says are untruthful. And these are the ones that fall into the category of just really over-the-top, blatant lies, down to things that are provably incorrect. (laughs) And then um, they have the scale that rates down to absolutely true, 100%. Nobody could ever contradict that this is a truthful statement of Trump's statements. They list that as only 4% is wholly truth without some shade of, well, it's true, but there's a little bit more to the story than that. So that's a pretty sad report card. Uh, The two that I want to point to right now is his over and over claiming that he did not lose the popular vote. He lost by 3 million votes. Um, But he really needs to, for his own psyche or whatever, cling to this idea that there were so many illegal immigrants that were voting uh, and they all 100 percent of those people voted for Clinton, of course. And then uh, that it would amount to enough so that it would throw the popular vote in his favor, all of which is really demonstrably untrue. I mean, you don't even need to go look at numbers for that one. It's completely crazy. And um, the other one was uh, the crowd at his inauguration. 
was larger than Obama's. And there were aerial photographs that show you what the state of the Washington Mall was during the Obama inauguration and what it was during the Trump inauguration. And he has claimed over and over that he had a larger crowd. Uh, the most entertaining fable he told about that for me was that uh, God essentially stopped the rain when he started speaking. And there's the cameras with rain showing on his clothing <laughs> as he talks. And poor George Bush Sr. trying to wrestle with a piece of plastic to keep out of the rain. And all these people behind him. Yeah, it's just Amazing. Sometimes I think he doesn't really know what lie means, that the truth is whatever he feels like saying, and a lie is anything he doesn't like hearing said. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty much, I think, the definition that he's working with. If we go off of what we've seen uh, in his campaign and so far in his presidency, of course, this claim that uh, once he becomes president, uh, we'll see the real Trump. Well, we're just seeing the same Trump that we saw all along the, on the campaign trail. Just, you know, anybody who detracts from what he believes is a liar and uh, whatever he says is by definition true. You know, I think we should throw in here something that has been talked about quite a bit lately by his allies. The statement that Obama said that you can keep your own doctor under what became known as Obamacare. And it's been pretty clearly established that he knew that that was uh, way overstated, that there was a lot of nuance to that that would lead to a lot of people not being able to choose their doctor. It was if the doctors agreed to participate in his plan, then you could keep your doctor. And the big thing was, of course, a lot of them chose not to. So we should make clear that we haven't going to be entirely biased here. I want to add, though, something that's very interesting to me about something that's not being said. Back in the 70s and 80s, especially, French deconstructionists and other high theory people were casting doubt on the whole concept of truth and saying that everybody has their own truth in the way they perceive things. And there is no real truth lying out there to be discovered, which very much conflicts with the concept that scientists, for instance, have of the way that we understand the world, that we may not know ultimately Every truth there is to be known, but there is a difference between mistakes and correct knowledge, uh, but between facts and myths and so on. And in the academy and among a lot of liberals, this was embraced. There was a great deal of uh, casting doubt upon the whole concept of knowing the truth and sort of deconstructing the whole concept. Um, those people are being very quiet right now. Mm hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard a single high theoretician come forward and say, well, <clears throat> all you liberals that are complaining about these lies, actually, we did away with that a long time ago. That seems to be, have been a moment in uh, intellectual culture that's come and gone for the time being. We're talking about trying to be even handed here. Let me quote a conservative that I disagree with on nearly everything he has ever said in his life. <laughs> I really wish he were not a public figure, actually. But David Frum, former George W. Bush speechwriter, but a complete Trump opponent, he's pointed out that he thinks all of this lying serves the purpose to silence the media. And what he means by that is, of course, it just directs the conversation 
about what the media is going to address, which, of course, presidential lying that's so blatant and so easily debunked is uh, kind of an easy story. It's a sexy story. It's something that everybody wants to cover. And he believes this to be a case of media silencing. And then we get back to something that's really, really dark and really, really scary. And I think he might be making a point there. What do you think? Yes, I've seen that picked up by quite a few other journalists who are pointing out that Congress is doing horrific things, undoing a lot of the environmental protections, especially that Obama had put in place. And, you know, a a lot of really nasty stuff is getting done. I think what's happening is the Republicans in Congress are gritting their teeth and putting up with this nonsense coming out of Trump's mouth because it diverts attention. Mm-hmm. from what they're really doing. And he's sort of the clown out there entertaining the public and distracting the journalists from their job mm-hmm. by saying, okay, what's the latest thing that we can fact check Trump on? And of course, we're doing that too. Yes. But um, use of language and the way it's used is our beat. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's a lot that's going on that's much more serious that ought to be investigated in, in greater detail that is not making the news just because of this barrage of tweets Yeah, that is uh, so distracting. Right. But, you know, I think there's a note of hope here, too. Can we end on any kind of note of hope for the, in this conversation? Well, one thing that is striking is that the newspapers that Trump has attacked, like the L.A. Times, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, have all shown huge upsurges in subscriptions. Every time he accuses somebody of being a horrible liar, it derives a lot of people in his direction. It's almost like if Trump says that something is false, then it must be true. <laughs> there must be truth there and truth that's worth paying for. Uh, Maureen Dowd did a column last weekend in which she's arguing that Donald Trump has energized a lot of things. He's the ACLU. He got the huge funding in reaction to Trump's statements and that there are more people organizing politically now than ever before. There's a, a lot of people deciding, well, it's time to actually not just post on Facebook to actually run for office and try to do something on the local level, um, build up activities. This is exactly what Bernie Sanders has been telling people recently. Don't put everything on one figure at the top of the ticket. We've got to reconstruct politics. Uh, And there seems to be a lot of movement in that direction or a lot of excitement about okay, we were just letting the press and a handful of politicians and businessmen and a few women run the country, and it's time to try to take things back into our own hands and inform ourselves better. I think that is happening. Yeah, and I was a little encouraged when I was doing a little research for this podcast. Tried Googling the phrase Trump lies, and you will see a great variety and great depth of coverage on this issue. People are alert and they're aware and uh, the scrutiny is taking place. So uh, it's the case where presidential lying is drawing a lot of attention and it doesn't always do that. Uh, This was very frustrating in the past at times to see a president telling something that you know to be untrue based on reports that you're seeing, but nobody calling out the president for saying something that was not true. That's not happening now. Yeah, Reagan was famous for that. He was so congenial and so well-liked that people would put up with an unbelievable amount of bullshit. 
Yeah. And still think of him as that kindly old man who says nice things. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the press went along with a lot of George W. Bush, especially the early Bush and Cheney presidency, where uh, they got wise a little bit later on. But there was plenty of reporting to contradict what the Bush administration was saying. But still, the press would not call anybody out on that. Because they were spooked by the memory of 9-11. Yeah. It's also encouraging to me that uh, Trump cannot go by the book and replicate Nazi Germany, even though a lot of people will tell you that we're going in that direction. Um, it really cannot happen again. Now, th that's not to say that the results of all of these lies and all of this propaganda cannot lead us in a very, very bad direction. And uh, it may be something really, really awful, but we can't expect to see that playbook used again. Not in this country. North Korea is still working pretty well. And Russia. <laughs> yes, to some degree. But in Russia, you don't literally see gas chambers. You don't literally see. We do see assassination of journalists and politicians that Putin disagrees with. Right. But these pogroms that, you know, this, you can't you can't go back to that era, really, um, with that level. I don't think we can go there in this country. Is that hopeful? I don't know. <laughs> that, that's out there. Yeah, I don't know. They, people have criticized the drone program being also Obama's secret war. Um, but, yeah, that's not something that cheers me up a lot, saying, well, we haven't at least set up the gas chambers. <laughs> the tendency to lie about what we're doing and about what we want and what other people are saying is pretty widespread. I think the biggest difference now is the Internet. People can complain all day long about what a waste of time Facebook is, but boy, it is really hard to cover up lies now. You may not always be able to persuade your opponents to look at the information, but keeping things hidden is really hard. And with the leaks pouring out of the White House and out of the National Security Agency and all these other the FBI, uh, this is the leakiest administration ever and that's a good thing at least since nixon right nixon managed to cover things up for a long time more than trump i mean hey, trump has only been in a few weeks and everything's come pouring out that's true the leaks when they happened in uh in the nixon administration they tended to happen all at once and toward the end they had to be pride loose yes right but once the tap was open i remember it flowed pretty steadily there but this is historically early for things to be happening like this i'm also encouraged um and we all should be encouraged that there's no evidence in polling that trump's support is going up no it's gone down and support for obamacare which many people don't realize is the same thing as the affordable care act has become a majority position for the first time yeah Ones having had it, I think when people start losing their medical care and not seeing a big upsurge in traditional manufacturing jobs, that's going to be the crucial turning point. Yeah, right. So it does come back to policy. But uh, for the time being, there are a few things that we can point to that are encouraging. And uh, are you optimistic that Trump is going to see how his support is sliding and he'll start learning to tell the truth more no i don't think he's smart enough <laughs> okay all right 
He's just this egomaniac. All right. I'm not going to have any hope for that. But there are a couple of signs that this is hurting, that this is not helping him. Right. But as long as he's got that majority in Congress, it's going to keep on rolling. They're not going to stand up to him. People keep yelling, impeach, impeach. No way. The Democrats need a few more votes in Congress before that could even be discussed. And that's on the voters. Get out there, folks. Oh, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Well, Paul, I think we've run this conversation as far as we can for now anyway. But thank you for indulging my position that the word of the year is going to be lies or alternative facts or something along those lines. All right. So long time. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening.